Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. And amen. May the Lord bless this reading of His Word and our time together in it. If you'll remain standing and turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. you're visiting with us for the first time, what we do here at Calvary Chapel is take a, usually on Sunday mornings, it's a New Testament book. We take a book of the Bible and go through it uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We finish one book, then we'll go on to another one. So this morning, uh, we're continuing our study in the book of James, and we're in James chapter 2, and our text is verses 1 through 7. So James chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, if you'll follow along as I read Our text, beginning now in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called. You may be seated. The real living faith to which believers have been born through the word of truth is a faith that both humbly hears what God says and then does it with a willing heart. And that is James' great concern. That believers are doers of the word, that we actually live according to the word that we have heard. He wants us to know and understand that a new life in Christ will express itself in outward behavior that is consistent with a genuine faith. A genuine faith will be manifested outwardly by living in obedience to God's word, reflected among other ways, by keeping a tight rein on your tongue by sacrificial love and compassion and meeting the needs of others, and and by personal purity. And these are, are some of the things that mark the life of a true believer, a true doer of the Word. And last week, as we began looking at chapter 2, we saw, that, we saw that James' emphasis on being doers of the Word is further developed in verses 1 through 13 of chapter 2, where he shows us that genuine faith does not show partiality. His specific command to be doers of the word uh, in the previous section is followed now by a command to avoid showing partiality or to avoid showing personal favoritism. 
And as we learned last week, this speaks of making judgments about someone. It's the idea of making an instant superficial judgment or evaluation of a person's worth based on nothing but outward appearances, such as financial, social, and racial distinctions, and on then on that basis giving them special favor and respect, or, on the other hand, neglecting or marginalizing them or treating them with disrespect. I mean, these kind of distinctions were causing problems in the life of the early church, and it continues to be a problem in the church today. And this matter of showing partiality based strictly on outward appearance is no, is no small issue. I mean, James tells us that it is a sin. Partiality is totally inconsistent with being a Christian. And it's something that the Bible condemns in a number of ways, as we saw last week. It is condemned by the very character of God. It's condemned by the Word of God. It's condemned by the very life of Christ, who always dealt with men in complete impartiality. I mean, throughout his earthly life, Jesus was never swayed by men's position or their possessions. Yet there were those among James' readers who professed to be following Christ, and they were acting in exactly the opposite way. And James says, in effect, how can you who profess to be followers of Christ, the Lord of glory, show partiality? And then in verse 1 of chapter 2, he said, stop it. Show no partiality. You know, cease what you're doing is the sense. I mean, his readers were saying one thing, and they were doing another. And that was something that James could not tolerate. I mean, he detests such thinking. In fact, he saw such partiality as an indication of a heart that at best is in need of spiritual help, and at worst is a heart without grace. And then after giving his readers a a flagrant example of partiality, James pointed out that partiality reveals a judging heart. And behind it, evil thoughts, or it could be translated evil motives. And so his readers were acting just like the sinful world. They were motivated to cater to the rich and and the prominent and shun and slight the poor and the common, all calculated to gain their own selfish ends. And that's anti-Christian behavior. It's the carnality of the flesh, and it has absolutely no place in the body of Christ. God is impartial. Christ is impartial. And his people must be as well. I mean, God showed his love toward us, Paul said, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then are are we obligated as God's still sin-tainted and imperfect children to love others, unbelievers as well as fellow believers? I mean, didn't Jesus say we were to be known by our love? So James denounces all financial, religious, social, ethnic, and cultural distinctions on the single ground that these factors do not matter anymore. What matters is Christ, who breaks down all of these barriers and makes believers into one new man, according to Ephesians 2. You see, the gospel is the great leveler. We all stand on level ground before the cross of Jesus Christ, and so 
James tells us we must avoid at all costs the carnal partiality and, and personal favoritism that he warns us of in the text. As one commentator said, the only partiality or favoritism that the Lord allows or the Lord honors is that in which, with humility of mind, we regard one another as more important than ourselves. And that's Philippians 2.3. That sort of unselfish partiality favors the needs of others above our own. You know, their, their welfare and well-being above ours. And so James couldn't be clearer. Partiality, personal favoritism is sin. And again, if there's one place where class distinctions have no place, it's the church, where we are all one in Jesus Christ. I mean, God is not partial. God makes no such distinctions, and neither should we. And when the church is anything less than, less than this, it ceases to be like God. As we come to verses 5 to 7, James now explains why their partiality, their preferential judgment, uh, or their preferential treatment and judgment was wrong. He makes the point asking three questions, each of which anticipate an affirmative answer. Look at verse 5 now. He says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. The first part of verse 6 should actually go with verse 5. So he's telling us that God has chosen the poor, but you, if you show partiality, you have dishonored the very ones that God has chosen. And so James begins by telling them to give him their undivided attention. You'll notice he says, listen, my beloved brothers. And this word translated listen means to believe something and then to respond to it on the basis of having heard. It means to accept, it means to listen, to pay attention, and then respond, to heed. So James is saying, I want you to accept, I want you to believe what I'm saying, but then I want you to respond to it. You know, pay attention and, and respond. And so the first word is obviously intended to attract his readers' very close attention. And then he refers to them as my beloved brothers or my beloved brothers and sisters. This is an even more affectionate term that he used in verse 1 at the beginning of this section. And so this is a warm call to listen. It's aimed at the heart. It shows that, that James, uh, giving them this word, not only be, he's giving them this word not only because he's concerned from the standpoint of truth, but he's also concerned from the standpoint of love. And I understand that kind of pastor's heart. You love the truth, but you also love the people. And he says, my beloved brothers, you know, he's reassuring them that his anger at the sin they were committing in no way affected his deep personal love for them. And one of the most difficult things in the Christian life is to hold this balance between hatred for sin and love for the person committing it, which is the balance perfectly exemplified in the Lord Jesus who was full of grace and truth. It is possible to be passionately concerned for the truth and at the same time to be harsh 
and unloving. Or to be so concerned not to hurt anyone's feelings that we compromise the truth to keep the peace. Both Jesus and James show us the way of balance and blessing in this area. And so what does James have to say in this verse? Well, that partiality to the rich contradicts God's heart because he has chosen many of the poor for himself. Look back at verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world? Has God not chosen those who are poor in the world? And the form of the question shows the expected answer to be yes. Yes. And this word chosen literally means to select out, to single out or choose out of, and it carries the idea of the sizable number from which the selection is made. And it implies the taking of a smaller number out of a larger. We're not going to address the, the topic of election here this morning except to say this word means to choose out for oneself but does not imply rejection of those not chosen. As one commentator said, when men become Christians, it is not due to their own unaided decision to accept the gospel, but to the fact that God has chosen and drawn them unto himself. And so his question is, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world? Answer, yes, of course he has. And this word poor is the same word that Jesus used in the Beatitudes, but the meaning there was poor in spirit. Well, here the reference is to the economically poor, speaking about poverty. And so when James speaks of the poor, he's not referring to those who are humble, the the poor in spirit, but rather to those who are economically poor. The world considers the financially poor to be inferior. But clearly that is not God's view, as this passage teaches. In his gracious love, James tells us, God has chosen those who are poor in the world, literally those who are poor in the eyes of the world. In other words, the down and outers, if you will, the ones who are without. Human choice, on the other hand, is always on the grounds of ability, importance, influence, wealth, or some other advantage. In James' illustration, the rich man was received and the poor man rejected. And that kind of choice is man's way of doing things, and it's carnal. But God doesn't work in that way, and he often chooses people the world would pass by. I mean, look, the majority of the people in the early church were poor. And that's been been true down through church history. The body of Christ is going to be made up mostly of the poor, the the common people, and few uncommon ones. But let's not misunderstand what James is saying. I mean, he's not saying there's any merit in being poor or that poverty was the reason for their being chosen by God or that all poor will be saved and none of the rich. He's not saying that. He's not saying that rich people cannot become children of God. I mean, of course, God also has chosen some of the rich, and and furthermore, not all of the poor put their faith in Christ. But all who are saved, poor and rich alike, are saved by the grace of God through faith in Christ. The poor are not chosen simply because of their financial condition, no more than the rich are passed over because of their wealth. 
all have the same invitation and are called precisely in the same way. And the gospel is God's means of calling. Jesus calls all people to himself without partiality. And if they put their faith and trust in him as Savior and Lord, whether they're rich or poor, educated or illiterate, outwardly moral or grossly immoral, religious or irreligious, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, makes absolutely no difference. But God has generally saved more poor people than rich. Because generally speaking, those who have much have a tendency to trust in what they have rather than trusting in God. And that is why Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 19, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Rich people tend to be able to solve all their own problems with their own resources. Whereas the poor, in their desperation, so often cry out to a source of supply greater and beyond themselves. I mean, the fact is, the poor often experience a special sense of needing God to, to realize their spiritual need, while the rich are often complacent and, and independent. And here in verse 5, James is merely pointing out that God is not partial. God does not show favoritism. God does not discriminate against the poor, and neither does he discriminate against the rich. And the believers James was writing to only had to look around at their own congregation to see that far more of the poor had responded to the gospel than had the rich and powerful. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 for a moment. I want you to see this. We quoted it last uh, Sunday, but I want you to see it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29. Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but he said, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. As one man wrote, God chose the foolish to become faithful, the weak to become witnesses, the lowly to become loyal, the despised to become disciples, and the world's nobodies to become the Lord's nobility. The church is primarily made up of the poor and the common. And Paul actually describes those in the Corinthian church for us in 1 Corinthians 6. We won't turn there, but you can read it later. He tells us that they were formerly the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, etc. Wonderful group. But that was the church. 
And as Paul said, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And God chooses his church. They are, for the most part, the poor, the common. And though they are rejected by the world in so many ways, God chose them. And notice what God chose them to. God has chosen those who are poor in the world, first of all, he says, to be rich in faith. To be rich in faith. I mean, despite being poor and having little or nothing in this materialistic age, they were chosen to be rich in faith. That is, rich in matters of faith. And it's important to notice James' precise wording here. People were not chosen because they were rich in faith. They were chosen to be rich in faith. And the word rich means wealth, abundance, riches. Generally, it refers to having an abundance of earthly possessions that exceeds the normal experience. But here in James, it clearly refers to a poor believer who has an abundance of spiritual blessings because they're rich in faith. And so faith is the sphere or the realm in which their riches are to be found and enjoyed. And so in contrast to the world where they experienced poverty and rejection, their faith allowed them to experience God's riches. God's riches which consisted of their salvation and all of its blessings. And this is along the lines of what James said back in chapter 1 verse 9 when he exhorted the lowly brother, that is the the believer who was low down on the socioeconomic scale, the, the one who was poor and powerless. He exhorted him to boast in his exaltation, in other words, to rejoice in the height that he has reached in Christ. His material position may never change. He may remain in poverty, but in spiritual terms, his salvation has raised him to a high, exalted position as a child of God. And in that he should boast, he should greatly rejoice in this and in all of his countless spiritual blessings that are his in Christ. Spiritually speaking, the poor believer is rich. Rich. In saving him, God elevated him from his lowly state, seating him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And Paul said in 2 Corinthians 8, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And think of all that the believer has in Christ. And think of all of the spiritual riches that are ours. We've been chosen by God to be rich in faith. We have been redeemed and forgiven according to the riches of God's grace, possessing the unfathomable riches of Christ. We are adopted sons of God. We are partakers of the divine nature. We have access to God's holy presence. We're looking forward to future exaltation with Christ. We will see Him and and be like Him, and, and we will possess a glorified body. As Paul said in Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then Paul said in Romans 10, 12, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek or Jew and Gentile, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. 
Paul told the believers in Corinth that as an apostle, he was poor in material things, but he had been privileged to make many rich, and that having nothing, he possessed everything. So though they may have been on the bottom of the social economic scale, James assures his readers that God has chosen the poor of the world to be rich in faith. They have abundant spiritual riches and eternal advantages. What they had in Jesus Christ far outweighed anything in this life because in Christ they were enriched in every way. As one man said, true riches are not deposited in vaults. They're deposited in human hearts who are rich in Christ. Looking back at verse 5, James says, God has chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith. And secondly, he says, to be heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. To be heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. God has chosen the poor of this world to be heirs of the kingdom. And the kingdom represents the entire sphere of salvation, all that it includes, that implies. And, and here James describes the kingdom in its present sense of the sphere of salvation, those over whom Christ rule, as well as its future millennial and eternal glory. And so James says, God has chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith, to experience all the blessings, all the spiritual riches of salvation in this life and also in the life to come. When we become children of God, we also become heirs of His kingdom. We forget what a glorious truth this is. God not only justified us, He could have stopped there. But He not only justified us, He then adopted us into His family. We have been adopted into the family of God, and, and the blessings we receive are just staggering. And we have an eternal Father who loves us and cares for us. We have an eternal family. We're, we're all one in Christ. We relate to one another as brothers and sisters. We are co-heirs with Christ. And in addition to having an eternal Father and an eternal family, we have an eternal home. And we trust in Christ for salvation. God takes us into his home as heirs, and, and nobody, and I mean nobody, is taking us away. And this is what Christ gave us when we believed in him. We are sons and daughters. Sons and daughters of the Most High. We've been adopted. We have an inheritance. We have everything that God can give us. We have it all. As fellow heirs with Christ, our inheritance is the same inheritance Christ receives, which is all that God possesses. And it will all be ours in the glory of heaven. I mean, we don't have it yet, obviously. And that's why Romans 8 says we groan, waiting for the full redemption of our bodies. We, we groan in hope, but we know, as Peter said, that we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. There's an inheritance reserved for us in heaven. And it's permanent. It is eternal and it awaits us and, and nothing can harm it. Nothing can touch it. It's there for us because of Christ. It is all of grace. It is all ours through God. And even the poorest Christian has been promised a kingdom where he will rule and reign with Christ. 
In heaven, there will be no rich Christians, no poor Christians, no second-class citizens of any kind. As one man said, every believer will receive the same eternal life, the same heavenly citizenship in the kingdom of God, and the same perfect righteousness of Christ imputed to them by the Father. Every one of his children will live in his house and bask in the glory of his presence and love. What a tremendous truth that is. In heaven, there will simply be believers in Jesus Christ who are just absolutely astonished and amazed that the God of glory was gracious enough and merciful enough to forgive their sins and give them eternal life. Being rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom is what God promised, James says, to those who love him to those who love him. Literally, it is to those loving him. There's there's a quality of continuity here. It is not those who love the Lord at one time, but those who love him, those who are loving him and will love him to the very end of their lives under all circumstances. A genuine Christian is not Uh, someone who at one point in time made a profession of faith in Christ, but rather he is a person who demonstrates true faith by an ongoing love for God. And like obedience to God's will, love for God, love for God is certain evidence of genuine saving faith. And so James tells us God has promised the kingdom not on the basis of performance, but on the basis of relationship to God. It is given to those who love him. You see, the promised reward cannot be earned. It is God's gift to those who truly love him and manifest that love by hearing and doing his word, by living a life that is consistent with the faith. And look, we're not not talking about Uh, perfection here, because nobody here is perfect, starting with me. Because we all struggle with remaining sin. But living in obedience to God's word is the desire of our hearts and the direction of our lives. And so who inherits the kingdom? All of those, whether rich or poor, who love the Lord, who love the Lord. And their love is not the basis of their acceptance, but their acceptance by God, but rather it is the result of their salvation, because John tells us in 1 John 4:19, "We love because He first loved us." And God delights in His children's love for Him and for His Son, because it is a free and, and spontaneous love. And the more we appreciate what it means to be forgiven. And the more we appreciate what it means to be reconciled to God, the more we understand the implications of our salvation, the more we love him. The more we love him. We should love him more today than we did yesterday. We should continue to grow in our love for the Lord. But James goes on to say in the first part of verse 6, but speaking to his readers and to us today, but you, he said, have dishonored the poor man. 
So totally unlike God, some of his readers had dishonored the poor man, those the Lord has chosen. And the word dishonor speaks of degradation and shame. It means to treat shamefully. He was telling his readers that their actions and attitudes were exactly the opposite to God's. I mean, the illustration of the two men coming into church was a perfect example of this. They had barely tolerated the poor man, yet God chose many of the poor to be children of God. I mean, they had decided that the poor man was not worthy to sit with them in church, yet many poor were included in those that God has raised up with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places. They had rejected the poor man, yet God had chosen many from among them. You know, many from among the poor to be rich in faith and fellow heirs with Christ in the kingdom of God. And this is even more shameful and despicable when we consider all that the Bible has to say about God's attitude toward the poor. The scriptures often speak of God's compassion for the poor. And here are some examples taken from just one book, the book of Psalms. I'm just going to read through them quickly. Psalm 68.10, In your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. Psalm 69.33, For the Lord hears the needy. Psalm 109.31, God stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. Psalm 113.7, God raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. Psalm 140.12, I know that the Lord will execute justice for the needy. And James will say later, all people, rich and poor, are made in the likeness of God, and therefore all men have the right to be treated with dignity and respect. As one old Puritan put it, God never made a creature for contempt. I mean, the dignity of man does not depend on the things that he possesses, but rather on what he is in the sight of God. Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But James says, you have dishonored the poor. You've treated the poor man shamefully. He's saying, in effect, how can you who are believers make such a superficial evaluation based solely on one's outward appearances? How, we ask, in effect, can you claim to be followers of Christ and yet think and act so differently from him? How in the world can you look down on the poor when God has chosen the poor to be the eternally rich? I mean, saying your partiality is inconsistent with God's attitude toward the poor, it makes mockery of his divine character, and it's inconsistent with biblical Christianity. It contradicts your faith in Christ, the Lord of glory. And in doing this, he says, uh, he said last week, you become judges with evil motives. And that kind of behavior in a believer is shameful and it's sinful. Rich and poor should be received with the same warmth and friendliness and treated with the same honor and respect. Impartiality to the rich contradicts God's heart because he's chosen many of the poor for himself and it's inconsistent with our faith. But not only is it totally inconsistent with our faith, it is also completely illogical, as James will now point out in verses 6 and 7 with a couple of more questions. And we can almost see, as we come to verse 6, we can almost see James shaking his head and saying, 
Why would you be partial to the rich? Look at verse 6. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? And James reminds his readers that their partiality toward the rich was, was certainly strange in light of the treatment they had received from many of their wealthy neighbors. Are not, he said, the rich ones who oppress you? The NIV has it. Is, not, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? And again, the, the question is written in such a way that the expected answer is, yes, yes. And we need to keep in mind that James is speaking here in generalities. And this is not an absolute statement. Because there were no doubt honest, upright men of wealth. Just as there were dishonest, crooked men who were poor. But generally speaking, it was the case that the rich oppressed the poor. And to some extent, we see that in our own day, don't we? The word oppressed means to come down on or to keep down by unjust use of one's authority. To cause serious trouble to with, with the implication of dire consequences. It means to cause severe hardship, to oppress, to overwhelm. And the only other time this word is used in the New Testament is in Acts 10.38, where it's used of the devil's tyrannical rule over his victims. The oppression James has in mind in our text is social and economic exploitation by immoral, unethical, unscrupulous, rich people who were lording it over them. In chapter 5, verse 4, James gives gives us an example of the kind of oppression he's speaking about. Chapter 5, verse 4, James says, Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of harvests, or the Lord of hosts. So the rich were perhaps defrauding their workers. They may have also been paying them pitiful wages that hardly even allowed a man to feed his family. While the rich man just kept getting richer. And there are many references in the Old Testament to wealthy people who exploited the poor and needy and the orphans and the widows. And in every case, God condemned it. Every case. Just as James now rebukes the Christians who were favoring the rich. And he's saying, why would you be partial to the rich? Why? Why would you be partial to them? Because you certainly haven't experienced good things from them. They haven't treated you favorably. I mean, James is saying the very people that you're favoring and flattering and just fawning over don't don't treat you with kindness. They don't treat you with grace and, and partiality or personal favoritism the way you treat them. Just the opposite, he says. They oppress you. Not only that, he says, are not the rich the ones who drag you into court? So here James reminds his readers that the worldly rich were not only oppressing some of the members of the church, they were also dragging them into court. He says they sue you. They drag you into court. One commentator wrote, if a creditor met a debtor on the street, he could seize him by the neck of his robe, nearly throttling him, and literally drag him into the law court. And that, he says, is what James is describing here. 
Because of greed and, and selfishness in, in every culture and age, I mean, the wealthy tend to take advantage of those who are helplessly poor. And so even though the rich man doesn't need the money, you know, he forecloses on the poor person's property uh, to collect the debt. Or he's charging exorbitant interest that the poor person could never hope to repay. And to charge the poor person uh, for believers, for the Jews in the Old Testament, to charge a believer, another Jew, interest at all was forbidden. So he charges him exorbitant interest, and we get so far behind and helplessly in debt, then the rich man uses the courts, likely having already paid off the judge. He drags the poor man to court and seizes his property. And James is saying, this is totally illogical. Why are you showing favoritism to an unbelieving rich man when he comes into your church? Why are you showing favoritism to the very people who return the favor by dragging some of you into court? I mean, why would anyone show favoritism to those who were oppressing and exploiting them? As one commentator said, James' readers, rather than biting the hand that fed them, they were feeding the hand of those who were biting them. And of course, all of this you know, reminds us of, of the way some Christians today just fawn over celebrities or, or politicians only to realize later that these influential people, they have no intention whatsoever of, of helping, supporting, or directing any of their wealth or influence to any Christian cause. And so James is telling his readers that partiality was not only sinful, but it's senseless. It's illogical. Because they were favoring and flattering the very people whose only concern was to oppress them and to exploit them. And even worse, even worse than that, by showing partiality to the rich, they were actually aligning themselves with the enemies of God. James saved the worst accusation until last. Look at verse 7. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called. The word blaspheme means to speak evil of, to slander, to intentionally be irreverent. And so if the oppression and exploitation by the rich were not bad enough, the rich were also blaspheming the very name of our Lord. Or as James puts it here, the honorable name by which you were called. The honorable name by which you were called that emphasizes the believer's personal relationship to and his identity with Jesus Christ. I mean, to be called by the name of someone is to belong to him. And as Christians, we belong to the Lord. And the very name Christian means Christ's ones. You know, those who belong to and identify themselves with Christ. And Christians take on the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We, we love the Lord's name. It's an honorable name. It is an excellent name. It is the name that is above every name. And Christians carry the name of Christ like a wife who proudly takes on the name of her husband or, or like a child who takes on the name of his father. And James is calling his readers back to their senses. 
They belong to Christ. Yet these rich outsiders were blaspheming the very one who owned them. And by blaspheming his honorable and excellent name, they disgraced and discredited the Lord Jesus Christ. They offended his followers and they sinned against God. And James is saying, do you realize who you're honoring and favoring? Why would you fall all over yourself to show favoritism to those who are actually blaspheming the Lord to whom you belong, the Lord of glory? And yet it was the rich who were getting this enthusiastic welcome into the church. But they were the ones exploiting Christians, dragging them into court and blaspheming the name of Jesus. Ah, yes, but you see, they had money and power. And so if they turned up at church, they were being given the warmest welcome and the best seats in the place. All the while, the poor Christians were being ignored. Or the poor were being ignored. And James' answer to this, do not show partiality. And so in closing, there's a practical application for us here. I mean, being a doer of the word, genuine faith in Christ does not show partiality. I mean, if we claim to be God's children, then we should actually behave like it. That's a novel concept, isn't it? If we claim to be God's children, then according to the word of God, we should actually behave like it. And if we bear the name of Christ, we have an inescapable obligation to be Christ-like. And the quality of our lives should be such that we don't have to wear a T-shirt or put on a bumper sticker or uh, you know, give out business cards with a fish on it to let people know what we believe and to whom we belong. I'm actually very leery of anybody who gives me a business card with a fish on it. I mean, Paul tells Christians in 1 Timothy 6.1 to behave in such a way that the name of God and the teaching or his word may not be reviled. So we're to behave, we're to live in such a way that the name of God and and, and his teaching, his word, may not be reviled. You see, loved one, what we, loved ones, what we believe is inseparably linked to how we live. And how we live is directly linked to how the world perceives God and His Word. Listen, the world doesn't judge us by our theology. The world judges us by our behavior. And so if you're act, if you're not acting any different, if you're not living any different, then why would they think you had anything to offer them? Or that Christianity had anything to offer them? The world judges this by our behavior. They judge the validity of the Bible by our behavior. They judge whether the Word of God is really true and powerful and life-changing by whether it changes our lives. And the world will judge the validity of the gospel by the character of the people who believe it and profess it and say that they've been transformed by it. 
The credibility of the gospel of Jesus Christ is tied to the integrity of the lives of those who claim to be Christians. And the way we reach the world is through godly living, a purity of life that makes our faith believable and makes God's word believable. You see, if we want to be effective for Christ in this world, then it starts with the kind of people we are. It starts with how we live and how we speak and how we relate to other people and how, how we are in relationship to others in our home, in the church, in, the, in public, how we handle our finances. We need to guard against living in such a way that our behavior turns people away from God and from Christ and from the gospel. When the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche became interested in Christianity, he began to move among Christian people, listening to what they were saying, watching what they were doing. And you know what his conclusion was? He said, these Christians will have to look a lot more redeemed before I can believe in it. So Nietzsche went back to his philosophical searching and eventually became the spiritual father of Nazism and the forerunner of what has come to be known as God is dead theology. One man said that the greatest hindrance that the greatest hindrances to the spread of Christianity are the unsatisfactory lives of professing Christians. He went on to say to be an accessory before the crime is a serious offense in the realm of law. And it is even more serious in the realm of grace. He said, there is an inescapable challenge in these words of Jesus. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. In light of that truth, I mean, we need to live our lives in such a way as not to drive people from Christ, but to draw them to him and make the teaching about Christ and our Savior attractive. When as Christians, we bear the honorable name of Christ. And Paul instructed Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, that everyone who names the name of Christ must depart from iniquity. And that means, as James instructs us here, not showing partiality. Not making superficial judgments or evaluations of a person's worth based solely on nothing but outward appearances such as their social and financial status, their ethnicity, their appearance, what they drive, what they, what they wear, where they live. That has no place in the body of Christ. But as one writer said, money still does the talking far too loudly in Christian circles. And where it does, he said, the glory of Christ departs. We need to put aside the standards of the world and see others through the eyes of the Word of God and in relation to Christ. We need to keep everything in God's perspective. And deal with men and women simply as fellow sinners in need of a Savior. Because the only difference between you and I and the most vile sinner on the face of the earth is nothing but the grace and mercy of God. 
And the gospel is to be declared to every creature. And Christian love is to be shown to all and not merely to one class of people. And it ought to go without saying that there's, there's neither virtue in merely being poor nor vice in merely being rich. Because God does not favor the poor and disfavor the rich as such. And again, granted, there are not many of the rich and famous in the kingdom of God. But salvation is by grace alone and saves from among the rich and the poor alike. There will be many poor people who will die in their sins, just as there will be some saved from among the wealthy. But the gospel is the call of God's free grace to sinners, regardless of their financial status or any other such difference. One commentator told the story of a conversation between King Edward VII and a man by the name of Wilson Carlyle who ministered to the down-and-out men of London. And as Wilson Carlyle stood by the royal bedside to minister to the ailing king, the monarch asked, Well, Carlyle, what are you teaching your men? And before there was time to reply, the king continued, Tell them, will you, Carlyle, that kings and tramps need the same Savior. As Christians, we have to look at all men and women as those needing Christ in their lives. And as is the case in every area, the Lord Jesus himself is our example. And he came to this earth in our humanity to provide salvation for sinners. But he didn't come only for rich, educated, powerful sinners. No, he came for all sinners. He came for the poor, the uneducated, and the weak, those who are down and out, as well as one man said, those who are up and out. And when he finally gathers all of his people together, when he finally gathers all of his people together and brings them home, there will be people of every kind, from every, every social and economic status and every ethnicity. It will be a people ransomed for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and they will be gathered around the throne of God, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and glory and wisdom and might and honor and blessing. They're all going to be together. And they're going to be saying, worthy is the Lamb. Because God has called us by his name, and we belong to him. We cannot show partiality, because we bear the name of Christ. We, we have this obligation to be Christ-like. And so James couldn't be clearer. If there's one place where class distinctions have no place, it's in the church. And he says, do not show partiality, because it's sin. It's inconsistent with our faith. It's totally illogical. And it should never be found in the church. And in verses 8 to 13, James now is going to move into the seriousness of this sin. But that's for our next study in James, Lord willing. This is a real issue in the church. I mean, how many wealthy and prominent 
are automatically given positions in the church because they're wealthy and prominent. A lot of times they're not even believers, but they're wealthy and prominent. James says, no, no. It is sinful, James says. It's sinful, and it should not be. We're all to be treated uh, with dignity and respect. We're all to be shown kindness and love. Nobody should be treated any different in the church. We're one in Christ. Amen? Let's stand and pray. behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. Grow.